Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. It is my honor to provide an official bio read of our guest co-host because I want you to know the accolades, the credentials, the experience in which our guest co-host shows up to this conversation today. And I'm so grateful for her saying yes to our invitation. Lillian Forsyth is a coach, a consultant, and a workshop facilitator in the areas of communications, leadership, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. She has 20 years of experience leading program operations and human resources for both for-profit and nonprofit organizations and has gained unique cultural and leadership perspectives from her extensive experience living and working abroad. Lillian's goal is to help leaders drive retention and engagement of diverse teams by providing training and coaching and consulting on inclusive leadership practices and systems. As CEO of Lead with Equity, Lillian has worked with executives and teams from organizations including Google, Santander Bank, and RWJ Barnabas Health. She and the Lead with Equity team have developed and delivered training on topics such as leading with equity, creating a culture of belonging, communicating with compassion, embracing difficult conversations, and establishing anti-racism in your organization. Lillian lives in Union City, New Jersey with her husband, baby boy, and dog. And so if you would podcast community. Help me welcome our guest co-host today. I'm going to stop sharing my screen, but I want you to find those emojis, find those words of affirmation, place them into the chat. Let Lillian know how grateful we are to have her with us today. Lillian, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And I want to start by um, having you greet this audience in your own way. But one of the things we ask that you consider sharing with us as you provide your greeting is maybe one thing about yourself that we would not know from hearing your bio being read or from looking at your LinkedIn profile. So this tidbit of insight helps us to get to know you a little bit better, but welcome and thank you so much for being here, Lillian. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Dr. White, Nika, for having me here. I'm really excited to chat with you about our conversation today. Um, let's see, one thing that is not on my LinkedIn profile. Well, you mentioned that I, I have a one-year-old baby. I have a dog, Beagle Bulldog, named Bailey. And one thing you might not know is that a good portion of my time these days is spent trying to prevent the baby from playing with the dog toys and the dog from chewing on the baby toys, so and vice versa. So that is, um, in addition to obviously the work that I am doing and the care that I am providing for myself and my family, um, that keeping the toys separate is one of my daily activities. <laughs> I love that. I have a dog as well, but I have adult kids that are out of the house. And so I don't have that issue right now. But when they were younger, yes, that certainly was something that I kept top of mind. I'll just quickly interject here that the reason that I love that question, and most times I'm pretty good about reminding my guest co-host right before we go live, that that's a question that will enter into the dialogue. And in all fairness, I did not give you that warning today. Um, but let me tell you why that's so important to me. And, and I think it's also a really good um just something to note for this audience. I think when we communicate who we are and we ask people, you know, who are you and, and questions about themselves, we always immediately gravitate to the work that we do, what we can produce. And I think there's so much value into us making sure that we, we also um, seek and appreciate other aspects of who we are that are just equally important, right, to our whole being. And so the fact that you are a mother and you are um, uh, you have a fur baby, all of that, I think, is really critically important um, to help us to get to know you a little bit better. And so thank you for taking a moment to share that. So there's been a couple things in the news this week that um, is related to, of course, this broad topic of DEI that I know has captured a lot of attention. And so one of the things we like to do here on the vodcast is just bring some of those thoughts into the conversation because we know that many in our audience are probably holding a lot of curiosities or feelings about what has surfaced. And so there are two things in particular that's top of mind for me. The first is yesterday we did recognize Black Women's Equal Pay Day, and I have been really um, encouraged by the amount of, of content that has been produced on that topic 
yesterday, right? What I want to say, though, is I'm hoping that the conversations will continue at the same level of intensity beyond just the day that we recognize it. But I would love to just get your thoughts and your reactions to this broad topic of um, Black women's equal pay day. Why is it important? And um, what, what do you normally like to socialize to folks who are looking to do better? Because when you know better, you do better around, you know, greater pay equity for Black women. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the work that I do with organizations is around is around equity. So we are looking at things like compensation and the data for your compensation, you know, disaggregated by different demographic markers across your organization and where are there disparities and where can you fix those? So I think, you know, that's something concrete that organizations can do that, that you know, um, private and public sector organizations can do is to really look at where are their inequities and disparities within their own organization and how can they fix those? Um, but I think there's also a broader conversation that you know, you've seen in, in the social media posts and things like that around you know, why it, it's not just because of not getting paid the same amount that this disparity exists. There is a wealth gap, there is you know, educational opportunity gaps. There are so many gaps beyond what an individual organization is responsible for that I think we also need to be um, thinking about. So, you know, again, in my work, I, I work with um, primarily companies, some nonprofits. Um, what are they doing to raise the conversation and um, get involved in that broader work for equity? So, you know, is it something around supporting educational opportunities and grants for, um, you know, women, women to get higher degrees or to start businesses, you know, those types of things are going to impact the, the, the broader inequity beyond just the individual organization. Yeah. What are yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, no, it's, you know, as a black woman, of course, this is something that is, is really important for me. I think that we need to continue to dig deeper. What I like about um, your, your response, Lillian, is that you brought into the conversation the, um, you know, how we also need to look at systems. You've mentioned the gaps, right? Yes, those gaps are there for a reason. And so I do believe that getting to the crux of the matter and making sure that we're solving for these issues by understanding how they first existed and how they continue to perpetuate is really key, it's really critical. I also think that um, I'm hearing, you know, from a lot of, of people that are in the HR space and recruiters that there's a greater responsibility on recruiters to also be communicative about what is the salary range instead of just allowing, you know, someone to come in and to share what they feel like they should be making? Because oftentimes people aren't well informed enough to even know what to ask for. So I like the advocacy that's happening in that regard. I even like the advocacy that's happening among Black women and even just women and people in general that are feeling a bit more intentional about sharing salary information. You know, that used to be a really taboo topic, and now that we're talking about it, it is it is giving us the opportunity to. To, um, you know, to be much more aware of what we need to ask for. And so um, I am, I'm continuing to watch this. I know that there's a petition that's out there right now that's going around. Um, if my team can source that, I would love for it to be placed into the chat. So those of us who want to be on the side of helping to communicate this message of, of needing to get to a place where there are protections from a legal perspective around um, equity for Black women, that we all are doing what we can to sign that petition. Okay, so um, another topic this week, and I um, this one this one hurts. So this one hurts a lot. Um, we know that Florida has been challenged based upon the leadership in Florida in many ways, but we also saw recently where DeSantis has um, communicated that um, in the in referencing slavery that Black people benefited from slavery. And to give full context to this, I, I want to make sure that um, I don't um, you know, misrepresent the, the, the contextual nature of which this came up. It wasn't that he was condoning slavery, but his point was he felt the need to amplify that um, not all enslaved people were treated badly and that there were a number of enslaved people who were able to gain some great skill sets that benefits them. How do you respond to that, Lillian? Um, similar to you, it's... Uh, the first reaction is, ugh, honestly. Ugh. I, it's like, ugh, are we really still talking about this? I mean, I think that... Um, 
it is it is a historical in a number of different ways. It is a historical in that the actual lived experiences, those that are documented, there are not that many that are documented, unfortunately, um, of people who were enslaved in this country are just 100% contrary to this. So that's the first, first a historical. The second piece is that this, this narrative that, um, that underlies the point that he is making is this narrative that black people are inherently less than and therefore need the help in whatever form it takes to become, you know, fully equal and fully capable citizens. And I think that that narrative has been with this country since its beginning. And um, to, so, so to, to say something like um, there were benefits from slavery is reinforcing that narrative that, again, is not true. <laughs> and, and, and for those of us who are doing this work of, of um, equity in particular, I think the, the foundation of the idea of equity is that all humans, regardless of color, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, all of these things, we are all inherently equally worthy and valuable. So then if disparities exist, it is because of the systems. It is not because of the individual failings of any one particular person or, or group. So I think, um, yeah, th- those are my thoughts. Is one, that it is ahistorical in a number of different ways. And two, that it is doing damage to this work of equity because it undermines the foundational idea that we are all inherently valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for for emphasizing that. Um, and and I, I I can say that it's been heartwarming um, to see the level of support just in you know perusing social media across all platforms. How so many people from different backgrounds, different races, ethnicities, who were taken aback and and felt um, harmed from that um, statement to have shown their support through, um, you know, different comments and, and sharing of um, support for the Black community <laughs> um, when that occurred. And so, um, again, it's, it's, it's something that we have to continue to be vigilant about in terms of communicating where there's misinformation and information that's being circulated that is really harmful, that, that does not work to the benefit of the progress that we're trying to make. And so thank you um, for, for helping us to amplify that in this conversation. So Lily, I would love for this audience to know a little bit more about your journey and your background and how you came to this work um, of equity. And so please share with us. Yeah, I put in the chat earlier when you asked us to that I'm currently living in Union City, New Jersey, but I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which for folks who are not familiar, it at that time and probably still today was one of the most segregated cities in the United States. It is a place where like many other US cities, um, you can draw a line literally down the center. It's called the Del Mar Divide. It's one street um, from North, you know, that runs east to west that divides the Northern part of St. Louis city and the Southern part of St. Louis city. And, and, you know, black people live above the line, white people live below the line with some pockets of um, folks of different races and ethnicities and, and, so I, my parents, when I was in elementary school, moved to, I, I'm a white woman. My parents, for those who are just listening, my parents moved to a, a home that was two blocks south of that line. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so as, you know, as a result, the community that I grew up in and the elementary school that I went to was actually very diverse and valued multiculturalism in a way that other parts of the city um did did not and I didn't understand this at the time right you're a kid you're growing up you're just going through your day going to school but I was in this environment from a very young age that valued um diversity and uplifting different people's experience and building mutual understanding and I just thought that that was the way that the world was Mm. and then I went to high school I went to a private high school in a very wealthy primarily white suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. And it was like, 
yeah. all of a sudden, oh my goodness, this is actually not the way a lot of the world is. Um, and so as, as a result of that with, and the, I go back into this very, very long ago, because I feel like those early experiences really do shape the way that we, mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. see the world. Um, mm-hmm. But it was, it was there that with, uh, by, by eighth grade, you know, with a group of other students, many of whom had gone to elementary school in a similar situation as me, um, started the school's first diversity organization. So this was like a student run. We were doing trainings, you know, once a month or so every few weeks for students in that first year that we started. And by the time I was a senior, we had convinced the administration to give us an entire school day for the entire school to do workshops and, um, you know, reflection around um, topics of diversity and inclusion. So it was that early time one, seeing like what is possible. And two, that, that like young um, spirit of, I can change the world, you know, that, that we have when we do that type of activity at, at a young age, um, that I think really inspired me to continue doing this work in all kinds of different capacities. So it became, it became a thing where no matter what job I was doing, you know, if I'm I'm director of a nonprofit program, or I'm head of human resources, or I'm doing fundraising for an organization, um, that work of um, thinking about how to build mutual understanding, thinking how to make things more equitable, was always top of mind for how I went about the work that I was doing. Yeah. So I want to make sure that I am clear. Um, you started this from a high school perspective. Is that when you were able to, along with some other peers, create this, this training or these learning experiences for peers in the high school that were not necessarily from that same um, exposure um, that you had in growing up? That is um, that is really interesting. And so I'm curious, I want to dig a little bit deeper there. Um, first and foremost, it is it is impressive to me that um, from a high school perspective, you and other peers at that age uh, were astute enough to think this this is this is a problem, and there's an opportunity where we can assert ourselves to maybe try to bridge that gap, right, of divide. Um, I'm curious to understand a little bit more about what that entailed for you and your peers. Did you begin to immerse yourself maybe in deeper knowledge of how to do this? Was it just based upon your own, you know, experience of, of being, you know, that part of, of the geography where you had close connections to other populations that were different from you? How did you organize and mobilize to get this in place? It was a little bit of all of those things. So we, um, one, we made sure we had a couple of faculty sponsors that we were getting our own ongoing kind of resources and training. Um, the group of students who who led this effort, um, you know, were primarily students who did not come from the community in which the school sat. Um, they were They were students who in various ways we we felt like outsiders and um and so i think for us there was already some access to um to different types of community various different types of communities that the goal was to like bring that into the school and and provide opportunities for more folks at the school to learn about it um and then once we had the support of a couple of the faculty members who were also you know championing this cause and and still are actually at the at that school um, they, they provided us with opportunities and they helped us to talk to the administration about things like securing funding so that every year there was, there was a, like a national student diversity conference that every year we would, um, we would nominate folks from within our group of, of like peer trainers to go mm-hmm. to that, to get those resources and, and get more ongoing training to be able to do the work of, of, um, of helping to provide learning experiences for our peers. Um, so yeah, it was it was a number of different things. It was like solidarity with each other, friendship, frankly, with each other, right? You're in high school, it's, you're doing the <laughs> things that your friends are doing. Um, and then making sure that we were accessing 
um, knowledge from different communities that we were all different, that we were all a part of um, and getting that support from the administration for the ongoing wow. training. So it sounds like this was a, a diverse group of individuals, people from different backgrounds, different walks of life that came together to say, this is something that I want to be connected to. I want to help create some impact around. Um, okay. I just wanted to, to get clarity around that. Um, yeah, that is, that is great. Thank you so much. I'm hoping that there's going to be some high school students that will eventually find their way to this podcast. And they're maybe thinking, Hmm, I can do that too. I guess I think that's important. I love when I hear that this type of, of, of learning experience is happening with our young people because you know when you talked about growing up where you where you lived it was a matter of that proximity to a different population of people than were on the other side and the way that you were able to kind of navigate that is because it became your norm you you have that experience as well with that population um and so i think that the impressionable years are during those really early years and we need to make sure we're being much more intentional to help educate our young people around around equity, inclusion, belonging. So I, I appreciate that. So your company, Lead with Equity, you know, of course I read in your bio, but you help leaders to make space for voices of historically marginalized people in order to help drive change in organizations. And so talk to us a little bit about your strategies for that. And from your vantage point, Lillian, why must leadership teams focus on equity to improve broken systems? Yeah, I. Uh, so I'll start with the, Second part, actually, why focus on equity um, of all of the, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, accessibility, why equity? Mm -hmm. um, I, the, the way that I think about things, I think is very influenced by most of my work has been in sort of operational roles. And I'm a very like systems type thinker. Um, and so I'm, I'm constantly thinking about what is the outcome that we are driving to and like, what are the, all of the little milestones that we have to do to get there? Like a very and a project management way of thinking about things. And to, and to me, that is what equity is. Equity is taking a look at what are the outcomes um, within our organizations uh, when it comes to things like salary, which we talked about earlier, when it comes to um, benefits, when it comes to promotions, leadership, you know, whose voices get heard within organizations, who influences decisions. Um, all of those things are questions of, of equity and wherever there is a, um, a disparity, where there is inequity, you're not gonna be getting the most out of the, the, the value of the people that you have within your organization. So, so for me, that was why when, when um, my partner and I started the company, it was like, equity is gonna be the center of what we do. Diversity is important, inclusion is important, but, but equity is like the end goal and those other things are um, are like steps along the process to get to equity. Mm -hmm. um, and so, how do we how do we actually do that with with the company? Uh, a couple of different different things. I think you mentioned somewhat in my bio. We do training specifically with leadership teams. So we focus with leaders on what are the skills that you need in order to be able to build a more equitable and inclusive organization. Um, we, research has shown us what those skills are. Like we, we know what they are. We don't, it's, it's not really a question anymore. So how are we making sure that we are teaching those skills um, to leaders in the workplace? And one of the, the key things that we teach that I, I haven't seen um, that many organizations looking at is how to have that lens for equity. So how to, with everything that you're doing mm. in your daily work, be able to look again at the, the outcome of what you're doing, the decision that you're making from an equity perspective and sort of think forward to, okay, is this going to increase inequity or is this going to decrease inequity? Um, and so we do a lot of training around that skill set with leaders, one-on-one um, -on -one coaching with leaders as well, because sometimes this, this stuff is harder to do in a group setting and it's easier to get the, the more, it's easier to get people to um, open up sometimes in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Yeah. Especially leaders, they have a lot of pressure on them. They're like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And, you know, it's, it's easier yeah. sometimes to do it one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and then the last thing that we do is we work specifically with, again, leadership teams and HR um, mm -hmm. to, to a more, more extent to look at their systems within their organization for things like talent management. 
So again, what are the outcomes of, of that system and how can we look to change the system to get different outcomes? Yeah. So I appreciate that. You've, you also have referenced your partner. So your business is in partnership with someone, someone else. And I guess the two of you together kind of lead the organization. Um, and I, I heard you say that you, in the broad you know, spectrum of work, you center equity. That is where you feel like it's, it's most important for the conversations to, um, to lead towards some type of impactful change. Um, one of the things that I would love to just dialogue around is because I know that's probably a curiosity of a lot of people that may be connected to this community. And we do hear a lot of chatter about um, the role that white women play into this broader space. I would love, Lillian, for you to just socialize around um, how have you navigated as a practitioner in this space and what are some of the difficulties as well as what are some of the, the, uh, the opportunities that you feel like have been afforded to you to help amplify the message of equity? Yeah, uh, I'm really glad that you asked that question because I feel like it's often it's often top of mind for me, like thinking about who I am and how I enter this space and yes, I imagine sure. top of mind for others. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Um, so what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? What are the problems? I, I think let's start with problems. Historically, white women have been really problematic for movements towards justice, right? You see that within the women's movement, there was a lot of racism. Within mm -hmm. other movements, white women have been problematic. So I think um, I, I, I enter conversations on these topics, assuming that people see me and they think about that historical baggage because why would they not? Mm -hmm. Like that, it, it is, it is, um, it is part of, of the landscape. So um, so often in, in terms of the challenges, I think it's um, a, a friend of mine who is sort of advised around the marketing for this, um, for the company told me early on, she was like, um, you, every room that you step into every time, she's like, I know you, I've known you for 20 years. Like, I know that you are truly invested in this work. But every time you step into a room with people who don't know who, who you are, you're going to have to prove it again and again and again, because the, the mistrust is going to be there automatically um, for a lot of people. So, so that is a challenge. But I also, you know, it is an opportunity in some sense. I, I try to look at all challenges as they also have their, their piece of opportunity, because it's like it it pushes me as a practitioner to constantly be checking my own um, privilege, how much I am speaking, how much I am listening, how, you know, it's like, I always have to be thoughtful about how I show up. And I think that is a good thing. Like, mm -hmm. I, I just, I think we, we all need to show up to this work. Um, thinking about how we fit into the puzzle and when we should step back. And yeah, I spend a lot of my time thinking about that. Mm. Um, I think where there is an is opportunity as well, different opportunity is that um, based on the networks that I have access to, mm -hmm. I can sometimes get into the door of a place that someone who is not a white woman or who looks different than me doesn't have the access to. Um, so I think there is, there is positive in that, in that it's like, okay, more people can get this work that might not otherwise get it. But there's also a downside in that, which is like, um, I, I've had this chat with, with co-facilitators where, you know, every training that we do, we have two facilitators and they have very different backgrounds because it's like, you can say different things to someone than I can say to someone. And there's mm -hmm. both a benefit in that, but there's also a drawback. It's like, I wish that all of us could just be honest <laughs> and that the person that we are talking to would listen. But the mm -hmm. reality is that different people listen to different people based on what you look like. So it's yeah. sort of like, um, there is opportunity in that. And there's also a drawback in that. Yeah. Um, let me pause. I, I would have more yeah. to say, but I want to hear your reactions and thoughts first. 
No, well, well, first, my reaction is, Lillian, thank you so much for um, engaging in that and that question. You know, um, I think that it, it is an important question to interrogate um, when, you know, we are we're talking about the the demographics of individuals that are steeped into doing this work. Right. Um, because, you know, the work of equity work, it has to be connected also to anti-blackness, anti-racism. And so it's, it's just important to understand those from those practitioners perspective when they don't necessarily fit into those demographics. And so I appreciate your willingness to kind of share your thoughts on how you navigate that. I think that acknowledgement is key. What's interesting for me is that when you first started um, addressing this question and you talk about the baggage that people see when they um, are exposed to you as a white woman doing this work and um, the complexity of that, and then even how sometimes you, you are aware of the need to have to walk into spaces as a white woman practitioner in this space, proving yourself again, again, and again. And what came to mind for me is that is the daily almost lived experience, professionals of color. So um, it's just this interesting juxtaposition um, that I think sometimes maybe we don't necessarily allow ourselves to, to talk about openly. And um, you know, I am aware of a lot of the criticism that some people have around, you know, white women in this space doing this work. My belief is that I think we need all of us to care enough about this work to be engaged in some capacity or another, because it's going to take all of us to be able to get society to a place where um, we are much more equitable. Um, what I also believe, though, is for the individuals that are part of the dominant cultures and backgrounds, you know, white men, white women that are in this space doing this work, is to also make sure that there is great level of intentionality in um, getting proximate to those issues and experiences, completely being self-aware of knowing what you don't know, and leaning on those other resources that do have those lived experiences to help drive the learning in a way that could be um, really fruitful, really meaningful, and to create the change that, that needs to occur. So this is actually a, a slight follow-up question um, and it's it's really just to get your reaction to that. What do you think the responsibility is, if you think there's a responsibility of, of white women in this space um, assigning themselves to a network of, of people with lived experiences to make sure that as part of the learning and the training and the consulting and the coaching, um, you are um, ensuring that that direct lived experience perspective is being brought into the equation. I think it's critical. And I think, um, you know, as, as someone who's doing this work with clients, it's like, I have that much more responsibility to uh, in, ensure that everything that we do is leaning on the lived experiences of folks who are the most marginalized, because that's what I want my clients to do. So it's like, yeah. I, I can't, um, I, I, I am a person who is like, I cannot ask my clients to do something that I am not myself doing or working on in the same regard. Right. So it's, um, you know, the, the way that we, that we handle it in terms of our, our offerings and our programming is we always have co-facilitators. We, and those folks come from all different backgrounds. Right. Um, and sometimes clients will say like, well, can't, can't we just do it with one person? Like it would be cheaper if we do it with one person. Like, no, no, you cannot because because yeah. you need those different voices. Yeah. Um, and you know, when we develop training training curriculum, there's a team of people who develop the outline and the programming. And those folks again come from different backgrounds. When we do, you know, we have a, a leader assessment, we have a team of people who are yeah. contributing to the the research and the scenarios and the checking of that. Mm -hmm. So I think to me, that is a big part of the responsibility um, for anyone who is in, uh, for white women specifically in this space, mm -hmm. but for anyone who is in any position of privilege or power is to always be um, centering the voices of folks who are of, of a diverse team, but in, in particular folks who are the most impacted by yeah. whatever works you are doing. Absolutely. You center the most marginalized, the most impacted. And while I gave that example, um, you know, I think the same could be held true for, for maybe, you know, Black 
practitioners that are in this space who are maybe not a part of the LGBTQIA plus community, and they're the ones who join the facilitation. Again, I would say the same thing. How are we grounding ourselves to make sure that we are doing this responsibly and within the context of direct lived experience for those who are most proximate to it? And so that, you know, while the question was very directed to you with the position that you're in, I do think that there's something to be said for conceptually just holding that thought in mind and interrogating it across all of us who are who are in this space doing that work. So momentarily, I'm going to transition and allow the audience to get engaged in our conversation. And you can do that if you're part of the Zoom community by using the raise hand feature that lets me know that you're interested in being called upon. And I will allow you to unmute yourself and share live and we'll add you to the spotlight. Or if you want to just share your comments or your question into the chat, we're paying attention there and we will make sure that we get to it as we can. Um, if you're joining us LinkedIn Live, you can certainly go to the comment section and add your questions there. My team is watching that carefully and we'll bring it over into this conversation. So while you're percolating, thinking on maybe the curiosities you're holding, I'm going to go to the next question just to give you a little bit more time on that. But Lillian, what I want to address now is that you have a free tool and this community loves free tools, but you have a free inclusive leadership assessment. And I want you to tell us a little bit more about that the benefit of it, who really is it's intended for, and um, and then how people can access it. Yeah, so it is intended for people managers, people leaders, and this is someone who actually has uh, direct reports that you supervise, so people mm -hmm. managers. Um, and uh, like I mentioned briefly before, we developed it with a team of folks who were clients and partners and folks from all different communities um, to help us put together what we didn't that was out there free and accessible on the market was a behavioral assessment. So when um, the, the person who was really driving the research on this, when she um, started to look at what was already out there, and because initially we were like, we need something to give our, our clients like pre-engagement so that and then post-engagement, right? And we started looking for what was out there and found that a lot of the things that are out there are that um, the, the style of assessment where it's like um, self-reporting, like I always sometimes never do ask And, and um, we knew that the person who I hired to lead the research was like, these things are not very reliable. Like this type of assessment is not very reliable. And so what we put together is more of a behavioral assessment. So rather than asking you, how often do you do X? It actually gives you a scenario for there, there's, I think, eight or nine skills um, mm -hmm. that go into inclusive leadership, right? Um, it gives you a scenario for that skill and it asks you which of these responses are most are the closest tied to what you would do or have done in this scenario. And so by that, it um, it takes out the like self uh, either over evaluating or under evaluating. Yeah your ability and makes it a little bit more clear and objective what behaviors you can work on and what behaviors you might already be really good at that you can start to to share and teach others. I love that approach. And when I think about um, the plethora of different types of assessments that are out there, um, I don't know of very many that actually take that precise approach. I love the idea of people having to envision themselves in a situation and to think about how would I respond here. I think there's um, more in-depth learning that can occur from that type of approach, right? As we think about how do we show up as a leader? You know, how do we respond in situations depending upon all of the, you know, the dynamics of the situation. Um, and so um, it has been placed into the chat for those who may be interested in taking this free assessment. Um, and yeah, I, I'm interested in kind of delving into that as well, just to have the experience of it. So I don't see um, any hands raised right now. So I'm gonna keep going with my questions, but once again, I do invite you all, if you have questions to feel free to um, unmute yourself and or do the raise hand feature or place them into the chat. Um, so I want to talk about inclusive behaviors, because this is coming off of the question with this assessment, but I want to talk about, from your vantage point, would making inclusive behaviors a part of all leaders' performance review be a benefit to organizations, especially in terms of measuring their progress around becoming more equitable? Is that a practice that you encourage, and, um, and why? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. I... So the, the why behind it is, again, we, we know what 
behaviors and skill sets drive inclusion in the workforce. It's it there has been research done over the last couple of decades. We know what these behaviors are. So to ask leaders to display these behaviors and to hold them accountable to them, to me seems sort of like a no brainer. <laughs> but the 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 um I think the challenge is that um some of these behaviors, if you start to measure them on your existing leadership teams, you might find that the folks who are in existing leadership positions maybe are not as qualified if you're starting to use these different markers, right? And I think that's scary for people. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's one of the challenges, but, but I think that organizations should absolutely be looking at those behaviors because it's not just about, you know, I think we're in this um, work culture, especially with the younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, who are demanding that your work is not just about what are the results that you're getting. Like it's also right. about how you are doing that work. Um, in terms of will it drive more equity within organizations? I think so. Um, and part of the reason that we wanted to that we want to get more people to take this leadership assessment is because I think that. Um, my my theory is that if you have more leaders who mm -hmm. are in charge of more things within organizations who are displaying these behaviors, that yes, the result will be more equity within the organization. Um, but I'm not sure yet. It's sort of like the the experiment is still is still out there. But I have to say, Lillian, that theoretically, it, it's sound, right? You know, we, we provide a way to hold people accountable around what we, from an organizational leadership perspective, deem to be important and necessary for the culture that we want to create and to maintain. And so we have to be explicit in naming what that looks like in action. That's where I think a lot of organizations fall short, is they can make the claim of being a very inclusive organization that values diversity, values equity. But then when it comes to being able to articulate and hold people accountable around the behavior outcomes relevant to that broad statement, there's a disconnect. So, um, you know, to your point, whether or not it can help move towards equity, I think it only can do so if there is accountability. So if it's a tied to the performance and the um, the person is not necessarily meeting the mark, right? That is kind of scary, but people should not see that as, as um, be intimidated by it. Rather, they should see that data as being really important to help inform, well, what type of upskilling do we need to now provide so that the individuals who have gaps and are not meeting the mark around what we are articulating as the inclusive leadership behaviors we want for our organization, that we can fix that. Because I yeah. think that the organization is not offering that step, that follow-up to help upskill and fix that, then um, I think that's a big indictment and a missed opportunity because you can't hold someone accountable for something that you have not articulated or being accountable for and what that looks like explicitly. So yeah. I'm big on over communicating, you know, and I say that with this work, we can't be passive. We have to communicate, communicate often and even over communicate to make it plain, to make it clear. Resistance is often a lack of clarity. And so that clarity, I think, is going to serve organizations well. So there's a comment in the chat that I want to read right now. Um, once managers are identified as having um, growth edges or deficits, <laughs> I like the way that was put, related yeah. to EDI, what are recommendations for what a performance plan looks like? And so Lillian, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that question from our audience. I think it depends on how big the organization is, how many leaders need that particular skill set. You know, there could be the leader goes out for external training. There are any number of organizations that provide um, public training programs that are available to individuals. If it's an organization-wide gap, like let's say you you measure and you see that, okay, across our team of managers and, and executive leaders, there is overall a deficit of cultural intelligence, for example, or cultural competence. So then it's like, okay, we can have, as an organization, bring somebody in to provide that training and that knowledge base. But then I think the, I mean, to, to your point, um, Nika, the accountability piece, um, often gets lost in just training. It's like, okay, we did the training, now done. But what most, 
Yeah, most people need for, for longer term behavior change is is one, the the accountability. So it's it's part of your performance management. And, and it's expected that like, that you will have some growth over time, but not that you will be, you know, go from zero to 10 in six months, right? I think that the, the um, a lot of times organizations have this idea that like, okay, within one year, everyone's gonna be like an A in this area. And it's just, that's, that's not the case. So setting reasonable goals for people to grow, um, giving them the training, one-on-one -on -one coaching sometimes to do that. And then um, like measuring interim progress in terms of their performance. Um, it's like it's like any other skill in, in a yeah. performance improvement plan. You know, I, I wish that um, yeah. more organizations, a lot of times with, with clients when they're like, oh, we don't know if we wanna invest in this or if it's the right thing. Well, it's like, well, if it was how to manage a spreadsheet, you would just do it. Like you would tell people you need to be able to do this to be competent at your job. Here's the expectation in six months, we're going to see if you can do it. Yeah. It, it's a skill like any other skill. You're right. And I'm so glad you amplified that. And I see your hand, Anthony, I'm coming to you next. Um, and I think that needs to find its way into, into more conversations when we're talking about solving for, for you know, equity and inclusion. Um, oftentimes, we will encounter a lot of organizational leaders who they do have this separation around, you know, the, 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 the leadership aspect of inclusion and equity from other skill sets that they want their leaders to have. And I'm like, put it into the same category. Let's not make this overcomplicated. What would you do if you needed someone to upskill around XYZ? Okay, so let's now have a similar pathway for delivering upon that. And so, yeah, very, very well stated. Okay, Anthony, your hand is raised. I would love to invite you to unmute yourself and to share with this community. Thanks for joining us. Glad to have you here. Hi, everybody. Hi, 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 hi. Uh, thank you for the time. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Um, what you or others may think about um, the concept of uh, decision making as it revolves around uh, surveys um, and how how organizations value surveys and um, and let me let me preface that with a little context in that um, I certainly am not anti-survey. I think data is so important. I think metricized data is so important. But one of the things that we're hearing with or we're hearing and that we're observing with many of the the clients we're working with is that we're surveyed out. We, um, Anthony, you know, we've we've done these surveys for a number of years, and that's why you're here because um, we we don't feel like they're 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 helping. We still have these issues, and one of the things that we've discovered in in these scenarios and these situations, and why we've been taking more of a facilitated approach is no one is asking questions of the people of why you feel the way you do, and a lot of decisions are being made around. Um, quantitative data without spending enough time on qualitative data. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Often it's fear of, of having those authentic uh, realities. And I'll use communication as an example. Maybe organizations find out through a survey, a metricized survey, that communication is an issue and a challenge that they're having. And so they invest a lot of time and money and resources into making sure the CEO does stand up meetings. We change our email system. We add a newsletter, we hire a communication specialist, and we still have this challenge because the survey told us we're still having this challenge. But when we dig behind the onion and find out why through the voice of the people, we find out that it really never was about communication. It was about a lack of institutional trust of leadership. And there was a the issue was trust. It was never about communication, but we would never find that out through survey. So just wondering what your thoughts are on how you apply both qualitative and quantitative work uh, to elicit what is really happening behind the scenes that truly impact culture. Do you want me to go first or you want to go first? I think this question is for you. I have some thoughts, but I, I want to, no, you have the floor, Lillian. Thank you, Anthony, for your question. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. I, so I think having both quantitative and qualitative data yeah. is important. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up the example of communication and the underlying issue being trust, because I feel like oftentimes when communication is the presenting issue, the underlying issue is trust. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, often a lot of the presenting issues, the underlying issue is a lack of right. trust, frankly. Yeah. Um, it leads to so many different top line issues. Um, 
but I, I think that having both the quantitative and qualitative data is important. And it's a matter of like how to not out survey people are surveyed out. So then you're looking at um, focus groups or interviews or one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, facilitated discussions where you can get, uh, like you said, dig a little bit more behind the onion for why that quantitative data looks the way that it does. Um, and it, it's a matter of how invested is the organization in really finding that out. Cause obviously that takes more time, takes more resources. Um, but as you said, it often leads to better results because you, you can only um, you can only solve the problem that you see. So if the problem you see is this, that's what you're going to solve for. And yeah. the problem is really down here. Sure. Yeah, I would argue that it doesn't take it may not take more time and take more resources, but it may take more courage. It may take more courage. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Anthony. I'll just I'll just add to what. Um, William shared so astutely because we're definitely aligned on this. I mean, first and foremost, um, I we are we meaning NWC and, and my my colleague who heads up our research and assessment work, Dr. Michelle. I'm sure is kind of jumping out of her seat right now, saying yes, 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 because evidence-based data is critical. It really is. It helps us to be much more targeted in our approach to solving for whatever the challenges are or the opportunities are that were discovered from talking with people, understanding their lived experiences. And you can't do that fully with just a singular quantitative survey. You need to be able to allow people to share stories, to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation, to dig deeper, to probe. And some of the reasons that I find people are fatigued by surveys has a lot to do with um, the lack of anything happening with the data that they've already provided. And so if you find that an organization is, is realizing that there's a lack of response to people um, responding to surveys, giving their input, then I would almost you know, say, let's question the last time you did this, what changed, right? Or what's at least in progress of changing? Because if we don't have that feedback loop, then people are gonna feel like this is in vain and you're just doing it for to window dress and to say that you asked our opinions, but you really aren't caring enough to try to actualize on some of the input that we're sharing. The other thing too is data is data. Organizations have to realize that we need to stop classifying data as right, wrong, good, or bad, and just see all data is opportunity. And the best way to really leverage the, the full opportunity and to optimize data is to be able to have that mixed method approach that's been shared in this conversation and, and also into the chat. You need both the qualitative and the quantitative. And you also need to disaggregate the data, right? What populations are saying what? It's not enough just to look at it across the board. And so I could spend probably another hour, and I'm sure probably you could too, Lillian, just talking about it <laughs> alone, but it's yeah. so important. It's, so thank yeah. you, Anthony, again, for your question. And Absolutely. we are out of time. We are out of time. And so I want to extend an appreciation to this community for joining us week after week. We don't take it lightly that you spend this hour with us. If this has been of value to you, then uh, we do encourage you to share it out with others and let them know about this podcast community. And that is also available on podcast. I want to give you, Lillian, um, the, the last 30 seconds to close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate to you. Thank you for being our guest today. Just want to say thank you to all of you. And you are here because you care and you're thoughtful about this work. And it gives me, uh, this work is hard and it gives me hope knowing that there are so many people here who are thinking about this and are, who are trying to be more intentional with the way that they show up in the workplace every day. So thank you all. It was so grateful. Have a safe and wonderful weekend, everyone. Bye-bye.